Thank you. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Just thought I'd do that because I never do it, do I? So I thought I'd be friendly for once. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 91. Uh, some of you will know, uh, because I've said it periodically, I spent a year working with a Roman Catholic church when I was training, and the priest decided that I had a good voice and should cantor the psalm. This was the first one that I ever had to sing, and the response in the version they had was, Be with me, Lord, in my distress. Strangely, it stayed with me ever since. So this was the, uh, the words from Psalm 91. And I'm not going to sing them. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection of the Almighty can say to him, you are my defender and protector. You are my God. In you, I trust. Our opening hymn of worship this morning, like all our hymns, is printed on the sheet. will also appear on the screen behind me. And if you're able and would like to, you're invited to stand with me as we sing together. Today I awake and God is before me. going to come now to God in our prayers of approach and as is our pattern at Hillhead after I've led us in a relatively short prayer we will gather together in saying the Lord's Prayer and we always invite everybody to say that in their own first language and in whichever version you are most familiar with so we can cope with trespasses and sins and debts all being said at once in English we can cope with alternative endings and it's wonderful to have other languages to enrich our worship. So let's pray together. Lord, we gather this morning to worship you. 
we come into the stillness of this building, temporarily away from the worries of the wider world. We come in order to take time to slow down, to become aware of your presence in a way that is more difficult in the rush of everyday life. We come just as we are, with hopes and with fears, with faith and with doubt, with questions and maybe even with answers. Loving God, you are with us. Gently, you embrace us with your very being. Saving Jesus, you are with us. You walk before us, leading us in your way. Life-giving spirit, you are with us. As air fills our lungs, so you fill us with life. Holy God, who is with us always, we praise and adore you, gathering our voices and the words Jesus taught his followers, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
As you all know, I was away last Sunday because I'd been at Emma and Drew's wedding, which I was the sort of person conducting, and it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. I think I might have a photo to show you later in the gap between the service and the meetings. But I understand that last week in Sunday school, who was, it, who was here in Sunday school last week? Anybody who was here, here last week? A few people. Because I know different people are here different weeks. Who were you hearing about in Sunday school last week? Who was the person you were, whose story you were thinking about? Can you remember? Moses. That's right. Well remembered, Max. And what happened with Moses in that story that you heard? What did he hear? Did he hear something? I think you had the story where he was out in, with his sheep and suddenly he saw a bush that looked like it was on fire. Is that the right story? Oh, good. I'm glad about that. And then what happened? What happened next? Remember? Say that again. The bush. That's right. The bush spoke to him, yeah. A talking bush. Yeah. And, and whose voice was it he heard talking to him from the bush? God's voice, yeah. And what did that sound like, do you think? Because I think you thought about that last week, what God's voice might sound like. Do you think it was a big, booming voice of Moses? No. Was it a squeaky voice of Moses? Kind of, what do you think it was like, Max? A normal voice, yeah? A normal voice. Yeah. Anybody else got any ideas? What God's voice might sound like? How we might hear God speaking to us? Might be a talking bush? Might be something else? Or have all the grown-ups not got any brains today? Or maybe they all know this is a dangerous thing, you see, because the service immediately before I sensed I was called to ordain ministry was on this exact theme about how we hear God speak to us. And maybe we're thinking, oh, I'm not going to go there because God might say something to me. Well, I think sometimes we hear God speak to us in each other. Somebody says a word that we need to hear, something to encourage us. Or we've been thinking about something and suddenly somebody says the same sort of thing. Does that ever happen to you? Try to go. <laughs> sometimes I think we hear God speak to us in the Bible. Yeah, when we read the Bible, something just seems to leap off the page to us. Does that ever happen? Wendy's half nodding. Phew, somebody's sorted with me. But do you know what? Sometimes it seems like God doesn't speak at all. And I'm going to show everybody a picture now. And it's an interesting picture. What do you think of it? Anybody wants to say anything about what you think of that picture? Do you like it? Do you think it's weird? Anybody got any idea what it might be a picture of? No, you don't know? Okay. That's all right. Well... This is a picture of Elijah the prophet on a mountain. Elijah the prophet had been working really, really hard for God at a time when it was very, very difficult to be a follower of God. And people were trying to catch him and hurt him and they were saying all kinds of cruel things about him and he ran away. He was so frightened and so sad and so tired he ran away and he just said I don't want to do this anymore. In fact I don't even want to live anymore. That's how upset I am. And God 
got him to rest, gave him some space to rest and to have some food and some shelter. And then he went up onto a mountain and into a cave. And God said, I'm going to pass by. And so Elijah came out and stood at the edge of the cave. And there was a great rushing wind. But that wasn't God. And there were great flames of fire. But that wasn't God. And the earth seemed to shake. And that wasn't God. In the Second World War, lots of people were rounded up and put into ghettos because of their race, because of their religion, because of their sexuality, because of their mental health. And millions and millions of them (coughs) were put to death. But this was written on the wall of a ghetto in a cellar in Germany. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. So even on a grey day, we still know the sun's there, don't we? Even if it's really cloudy, we believe the sun's still there. I believe in love, even when I cannot feel it. I believe in God, even when he is silent. Sometimes God speaks to us quite clearly. Well, we believe God speaks to us quite clearly in each other, in the Bible, in music, through a sermon, whatever it is. Perhaps through a vision, perhaps through a special word that comes to us. And sometimes, <coughs> complete silence. But God's still there. So we're going to sing a song which is kind of one of my favourites. Lord, you sometimes speak in wonders. Thanks, Paul.
Our Bible reading today begins in a selection from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. It was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. And now a selection from the letter of James. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then... When that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. 
You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So ends the reading. May God bless us all. Well, it's global events such as 9-11 or 7-7 or the endless flow of desperate refugees from Syria and other faraway countries. Or whether it's something very local and very personal such as illness or bereavement or private struggle. 
we can find ourselves asking the question, why? Why does a good God allow such things to happen? Why doesn't a good God stop such things from happening? Why do bad things happen to good people? And vice versa. If God is love, then why is there war, injustice, famine, flood, earthquake? For some people, the natural response to a personal tragedy is to ask the question, why me? And for others, it's equally natural to ask the question, well, why not me? And neither of those questions is inherently more Christian or better. I think that each of them, to some degree at least, reflects how a person understands and experiences God in the context of suffering. Rachel was one of my tutors at college. She was a single woman in her late 50s who had, in her younger years, served as an educationalist among people of colour in apartheid South Africa. And her deep desire as she neared retirement was to return to this land that she loved so much. Her final years in employment saw her travelling backwards and forwards between Manchester and Cornwall to care for her elderly parents. During the time that she was my tutor, she laid both of them to rest. So finally, she was able to begin to plan her dreamed-of trip. And she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. My immediate reaction, and that of others who knew her, was, that's not fair. And it wasn't fair. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But Rachel didn't once entertain such a thought. Never once did she ask, why me? Never once did she bemoan her loss. Within two short years, Rachel had died. At her funeral service, which was a total pack-out, we sang in one of her favourite hymns of the wideness in God's mercy, of a love that we make too shallow by false limits of our own. Rachel was able to face her diagnosis her disappointment, and even her death with courage and dignity because her faith was in a God who is neither a tame genie to grant the the wishes of the faithful nor a capricious overlord who blesses some and smites others. Rachel would speak of a damaged and disordered world, of corporate sin, and shared responsibility. And she could speak of a God whom she called Father, who was there with her in the midst of it all. 
Rachel taught me a lot. She taught me some theology in classes, but she taught me a lot more by who and what she was. And what she has taught me has informed for the good my own response to evil and suffering. And for that, among many things, I'm very grateful. Among the themes we discover in the letter of James are suffering, temptation, and evil. And perhaps what we've got is some responses to questions that people were asking or reflections on real-life situations of which the author was aware. It's certainly not an academic treatise. It's one believer in Jesus, one person trying to follow Jesus, sharing with others their thoughts as they try to make sense of life in all its diversity. Much as I love the book of James, one thing that shocks me every single time I read it is the brutality of the opening. After the very briefest of greetings, we read, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So, not only to accept trial, temptation, and suffering, to embrace it. And not only to embrace it, but to be joyful about it. And not only that, but to see it as an opportunity to develop endurance. Yippee! Something bad's happened to me. This is going to be character building. Praise the Lord. Sorry, I don't think so. Shortly after I was diagnosed with cancer, somebody said to me with very kind intention that this would allow me to draw nearer to God. Well, I'll tell you something. If I wasn't a minister, I'd have punched them. More recently, I was sharing my story with some ministerial students as part of their training in pastoral care. And I was asked by one of them, so... How did God speak to you in this experience? I was flummoxed. Because whilst I was sure that God was there, I also knew that, frankly, God had been pretty much silent through the worst of that. And I suspect if we were to all open up and share our stories, we could find many such examples. I think publicly, Christians struggle with accepting struggle. We're not quite sure how we should respond when the reality doesn't fit an ideal we had, been, we had imagined or been sold by somebody who meant well, but frankly, wasn't very helpful. There are twee Christian responses to tough questions that are about as stable as houses built on sand that all too often lead us to a faith that can't withstand trial, temptation, and the tragedy of human experience. I think, or at least I would like to think, that that is what the writer is trying to address here. 
It hasn't got all the answers that will make it make sense. But perhaps he's got some thoughts about the kind of answers that are unhelpful and unhealthy. Whatever its scale and whoever's affected by it, I think it's probably fair to say that our endeavours to understand suffering lead us to ask questions about evil, about temptation, and about the nature of God. And this is something that the writer of James explores right from the start when he talks about temptation. He says, No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and God tempts no one. Temptation is as old as time itself, and it comes in many different guises, doesn't it? In the Genesis story, it's personified in a talking snake who cunningly poses questions to lure the gullible humans into misguidedly thinking that if they can just do this one thing, they will achieve divinity. The potential to temptation, then, has always been there. In the story of Job, which is alluded to in James, we get an image, probably a fictitious image, of God and Satan, where Satan is a tempter, who are engaged in some kind of cosmic battle of wits, in which endless and impossible tragedy is permitted in order to either derail or prove one man's faith. There's much about the book of Job I like. There's a lot about it that bothers me. I don't like this image of a divine battle of wits, that somehow God's engaged in a battle over us, but there we go. Still the same thing, the temptation when bad things happen to give up. And then, of course, in the Gospels, Jesus himself is faced by very real temptations. Famously and specifically, the three immediately following his baptism, to be the great provider of food for the hungry, to be the great genie performing stunts in the temple, just leaping off and not getting hurt, to control the world by conforming to the ways of sin and self. And elsewhere in scripture, we read that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet did not sing. And that's worth pondering. It wasn't just the grand gestures and abuse of power, but the inner wrestling with everyday temptations that would demean or reduce his humanity. The temptations that demean or reduce our humanity. God in Jesus knows what it's like. James says, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. The link between temptation and suffering isn't always obvious, but it's there. That inner human trait of selfishness and ambition that the speaking serpent exploited, the desire to achieve or, and acquire wealth or success or status, is something that does not ultimately bring life. 
rather it leads or at least has the potential to lead to the path of suffering and death literal or metaphorical our own or others or indeed of the whole good creation of which we are but a tiny part consider any large scale tragedy and we saw quite a few on the images and the root cause is likely to be human greed climate change extinction of animal and plant species wars whether or not they are deemed to be just possibly and arguably even pandemic and epidemic spread of disease in an age when airline travel and foreign holidays are available to those in the wealthy west when we turn on our televisions or open our newspapers or however we access news media these days and we learn of some new tragedy refugees drowning in icy seas people buried alive following an earthquake children abused by parents or carers xenophobic or homophobic attacks cruelty to animals and many many other things the question we should be asking ourselves is not why does god allow this or why doesn't god do something about it but what was the human temptation that gave birth to the attitudes that allowed this to happen or what can i what can we do about this The reality is that some degree of suffering is inevitable. Our planet is affected by the consequences of natural processes that do sometimes result in earthquakes or tsunamis or volcanic eruptions. And those who make their homes in certain places knowingly or unknowingly accept the risk that that brings. And I think that does have something to say to us in the wealthy west when we go to holiday destinations that are put in dangerous places or we drive uh, indigenous peoples out to the dangerous places so that we can have the nice places our planet is also affected by the influence of humanity which in its selfish aspiration to dominate creation has plundered and poisoned the good earth entrusted to us disease disaster and death all too often have their root cause in the unforeseen and let's be generous unintended consequences of human activity and that's not just since the industrial revolution it goes back to the dawn of time just taking stuff and out, not thinking about the consequences the saying says doesn't it as you sow so shall you reap and the whole earth reaps the harvest of human attitudes and actions bad things will continue to happen to good people cheats will continue to prosper innocent children will drown in icy seas lives will be cut short because of illness or injury life will be unfair 
And the truth is that God isn't going to step in every five minutes to fix that. Why? Well, because that to do so would deny us the freedom that, if the scriptures are to be trusted, has been ours since the dawn of time itself. God can't give us free will and then keep leaping in every time we mess up. It wouldn't be free will, would it? And God isn't going to favour those who believe the correct doctrines or pray the most fervent prayers, either granting their every whim. Which is as well, because frankly, such a God is not one that I want to believe in. God loves the whole of creation. Christ died for the whole cosmos. The untamable spirit continues to work order from chaos wherever she will. So, are we abandoned to despair? Is there nothing we can do? Not at all. And this is where what James has to say comes into its own. Even in the midst of tragedy or suffering, our own or others, our God-given free will remains. We still have some degree of choice in how we respond. We can just give up, give in to the unhealthy temptation to despair, or allow bitterness to destroy our capacity for joy. Or we can choose determinedly to trust in the God revealed to us in Jesus, a man well acquainted with suffering, and who chose wherever he could to bring life and hope to those afflicted by illness, poverty, or exclusion. And even if sometimes we are clinging on by our fingertips, we choose to believe in a God who is all too often silent. We try to be patient in adversity, and we keep on praying for the courage to face each new challenge. And perhaps, too, we follow the example of Jesus and do what we can to alleviate the suffering of others less fortunate than ourselves. Feeding those who are hungry, clothing those who are naked, housing those who are homeless, welcoming the stranger, challenging the oppressor, even and perhaps especially when we realise that that is us, and living out the answers to our own prayers. James tells us that God doesn't send suffering or temptation our way. Rather, they're the consequences of the disordered world in which we live. A lot of suffering is, whether directly or indirectly, a result of our own greed and sin, not simply an unfortunate consequence of natural processes. James says suffering produces perseverance. And I guess we have choices to make in relation to our own suffering and to that of others. Personally, we can choose whether we're going to wallow in it or be overwhelmed by it, or whether doggedly and determinedly we get through it. Globally, we can close our hearts and our minds to the suffering of others, or we can do something, however small, to alleviate it. James says God is full of mercy and compassion. God cares about people and wants the best for them. Even when the sun isn't shining. 
even when we feel unloved, even when God is totally, utterly silent. We'll never find answers to some of the questions that arise within us, no matter how earnest and resilient our faith. And there will still be moments when suffering threatens to overwhelm us. But we choose divinely to trust that the God who is loved shares with us and will never, ever let go of us or of those we love and care about. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn will tearless be. These words in our next hymn, which we're going to have to sing off the sheet because the computer's gone to sleep, were penned by a Scotsman who was well acquainted with suffering. He suffered from a disease that would cause him to go blind at a young age. And yet, despite this, he too experienced uh, Freshers' Week in some form down the road. He registered at University of Glasgow to study. And there he fell in love and he planned to marry. But when he told his fiancée that he was going to go blind, she broke off the engagement. Some years later, on the eve of his sister's wedding, the pain of rejection and the pain of blindness were especially acute. He sat down and he penned this now famous hymn, which brings comfort to me in my darkness and I'm sure comfort to many others. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee.
In our prayers this morning, there is a response which is printed on the sheet. When I say the words, trusting even in affliction, you're invited to join me if you would like to in saying, we will walk in the presence of God. So trusting even in affliction, we will walk in the presence of God. Let us pray together. God, our creator, redeemer and sustainer, we turn our hearts and minds to you with our prayers for others and for each other. On this day, when we are especially reminded of one act of terrorism in one wealthy Western nation that took place many years ago, We pray for those for whom this will always be a day of painful or poignant reminders. For those families whose loved one died in the aeroplanes, in the buildings, among the emergency and rescue services, who will never find adequate answers and who, through media reporting, will this day be reminded so vividly of their loss. We believe you are present with them and entrust them to your safekeeping. Trusting even in affliction, we will walk in the presence of God. On this day, we know that across the globe, In every nation and people group, there are those for whom this day is or will become a day of painful or poignant reminders. Unlikely even to reach local news, families will face tragedy and loss. Acts of violence or terror will be perpetrated against some other disease or injury, hunger, poverty, or natural events will lead to loss of life. In the silence of the media and our own inevitable ignorance, we believe that you are present in the work of emergency services and aid agencies, in the touch of a hand or the comfort of a carefully chosen word, and entrust these two to your safekeeping. Trusting even in affliction, we will walk in the presence of God. In this day and in this place, each of us carries within us memories of past suffering and for some the very real pain of present experience. Some things we may be able to name aloud and so find release or reassurance and some we may never be able to speak of even to ourselves. Some we have, with your help, woven into the fabric of our ongoing lives. 
and some is ragged and raw. In the stillness and silence of this moment, we open ourselves to you, knowing that whether you speak or are silent, whether we feel comforted or abandoned, you really are there, alongside us and within us. Trusting even in affliction, we will walk in the presence of God. God, who in the suffering Christ experienced physical torment and mental anguish, who was deserted by friends and abused by the religious authorities, and yet found the inner resources to pray generally for those whose actions had led to his suffering, and individually for a frightened, dying criminal. Into your hands we commend our spirits and our prayers. Amen. Loving God, we offer you these gifts of money, and with them we offer our hearts and our minds and our strength, that all be employed in your work of renewing the earth and filling it with the love and good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our closing hymn is sometimes described as a children's hymn. Some people I know don't like it. Other people love it. But it seems to me to express everything that I would want to say this morning and more. That whatever life brings us, God travels with us. One more step along the world I go. And it's from the old I travel to the new. Keep me travelling along with you. God, enfold us in the healing embrace of love, strengthen us with courage for the journey, and give us peace even within the storms of life, now and always. Mm-hmm.